0: Well, John chapter 1, and um, we'll focus on verse 1. But as I'm speaking, you can cast your eye down that whole passage, and you'll keep coming across remarkable phrases. So feel free to do that, it's rich. Almost always, the birth of a child is pivotal and a very singular and significant point in the lives of many, many people. And if you have children, you probably remember very well the movement from life before the child to life after the child. And of absolutely no one is that more true than of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that all over the world, people measure time and history as it relates to his appearance in the world and his birth in time and space. Whether people say uh, B.C. and A.D., Or whether they talk about the common era, uh, they can't get away from him. They're measuring time and they're measuring history by his appearance, by his birth, before and after his appearing in the world uh, at Bethlehem. And when you think about that, you'd think that's extraordinary. What kind of person is this that they divide time and history in that way, depending on whether he was here or whether he had not yet come? And it's extraordinary until you realize that he, without question, was the greatest person ever to be born. Now, you folks are very well familiar with, Christian and biblical theology, and so you might say, well, of course, he's the greatest person who was ever born. That's just rudimentary. And of course, I'd agree with you, that, that is basic. It's rudimentary. Of course, he's the greatest person who was ever born. But well, what I would add is that it starts to get exciting when you begin to think about exactly why he's the greatest person who's ever born. You begin to try and break down some of the constituent parts of that. Well, he's the greatest person who was ever born because of this. And you begin to think about that, begin to ponder that, and follow Mary's example, and ponder these things. And then you begin to realize this is absolutely astounding, and this is wonderfully exciting, and it is thrilling, and it thrills us to the depths of our hearts to think that this this person who's the greatest person ever to be born is someone we know, and someone with whom we sustain an intimate relationship, and someone who loves us, and by God's grace, someone we love. Well, this morning, we want to try, we want to try and think about the reasons why he's the greatest person ever to be born. And with God's help, Lord willing, we'll be able to enter into and experience something of wonder, love, and awe as we think about it. So why is Jesus the greatest person ever to be born? Well, because he is the Word. He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That's what John says, and we know from the rest of the chapter that he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Word, he's talking about Jesus. And the question is, what does John mean by that? What does he mean by the fact that Jesus is the Word? Well, if you were a New Testament era Jew and you heard someone say that and you read John saying that Jesus is the Word, what would happen is that all kinds of Old Testament scriptures would Uh, swirl around in your mind. All kinds of Old Testament Scripture references would uh, come back to you. Things you've heard, things you've been taught even growing up. All kinds of phrases from the Old Testament Scriptures would begin to percolate in your mind and you'd say to yourself, well, now this, if what he's saying is true, this is astounding. If what he's saying is true, that Jesus is the Word... If he's actually the Word, then that's tremendously exciting in light of what I know from the Old Testament. In light of what the Bible has to say about the Word, if he's actually now here, if the embodiment of that Word is here, that's tremendously exciting. Because, first of all, the Word was involved in creation. The Bible has so much to say about the word of the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Everything that was created was made through the word. You remember what we read here in the earlier verses of John 1. You also remember the record from uh, Genesis chapter 1. Again and again, what we're told is, And then God said, And then God said, And then God said, and every time God said, it became, when God said, let this, he created something, and so by his word, he created things, ex nihilo, you know, out of nothing, simply by saying something, God's powerful word, the universe comes into being and is created by God's powerful word. And you think to yourself then, because you just read what John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. And you say, well now, could it possibly be that the Word has become flesh? That Word, which is so powerful, that Word which brings a universe into being, can that Word actually be in flesh? Could that Word be walking amongst us? You begin to realize this is tremendously exciting. The Word has come. God's Word is involved in creation, and God's Word is involved in revelation. And thank God, the Lord's not left us in our ignorance. The Lord's not left us blind. He's not left us as those who do not know Him. No, God has revealed Himself he has revealed His work to us, and He's revealed His will to us, and He's revealed His ways to us, and He's spoken to us about His wonders. And so repeatedly in the Old Testament, we read things like this. So the word of the Lord came, again and again, the word of the Lord came, and it came to Isaiah And it came to Ezekiel, and it came to Jeremiah, and it came to Jonah. And again and again, the word of the Lord comes. They don't turn to Him. They don't look to Him. They don't listen for Him. God arrests them, and His word comes to them in grace and in mercy and in revelatory wonder. And He speaks, and He explains, and He reveals Francis Schaeffer was one of the great Christian leaders of the 20th century and a number of excellent books, and one of them was remarkable, even simply for its title. It's a wonderful title, "Speaking About God." The title says, "He is there, and he is not silent." He didn't have to be not silent. He didn't have to speak. He could have consigned each and every one of us to a godless eternity. He would have been totally just in doing that. But he is there and he is not silent. He has spoken and the word of the Lord has come to us. It was so repeatedly in the Old Testament. And now what John is saying is that that word has come to us literally and physically. The embodiment of ...of the Word is here. The Word has come to live amongst us. Someone has said that a man's Word... ...is the means whereby he reveals what he is thinking. That's obvious. And the Word of God is his thought... ...uttered so that man might understand. The Word is God's thought uttered... ...so that we might understand... Well, in verse uh, 18 of our passage, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, and that word God is in reference to the Word, in reference to the Lord, Jesus. The only God who is at the Father's side, the Word was with God, has made Him known. And so when Jesus comes, He says, If you know Me, you know the Father. Because I am the living exegesis of the glorious person of God. The Word of God is here. And He walks amongst us. That's what John was saying. Because the Word is involved in creation and God's Word is involved in revelation. And God's Word also is involved, of course, in salvation. People, because of their sins, suffer. Just Read a book about the world. Just read a book about history. Just look around you. Just have a conversation with people. And you know that because people are sinful, they suffer. And Psalm 107 says just that, that people are sinful and so they suffer. And then it says this, he sent his word and healed them. The Word of God has to do with salvation. It's involved in saving people from sin and all the suffering that their sin brings upon them. And repeatedly, the Word comes to the prophets and calls calls men to salvation and describes what that salvation is like and who will accomplish it and how he will do it. And now John says that word, that word which is involved in creation and revelation and salvation has arrived. The word that was in the beginning, which was God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And set up his tent here on this earth. And the stuff of this world was upon his feet and on his hands. We read... In Luke one sixty nine, God, says uh, Zacharias, has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The word has come. The New Living Translation says, God has sent us a mighty Savior. The horn of salvation has been raised up. The word, and the word that saves, the word that heals, the word that rescues, the Word that is so desperately needed by sinners like us, that Word has come. The embodiment of salvation has arrived. And as Titus says, Paul says in Titus, grace has entered the world. The embodiment of grace, the gracious Word has come. So John says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh." So look yes he's he's the greatest person ever to be born what child holds the slightest candle to this one he's the greatest person ever to be born why is that well he's the word secondly because he's eternal he's eternal I don't know what my earliest memory was or is. I tried to think of it over the last couple of days, and I can remember things, but I don't know which is earlier than the other. I don't know what your earliest memory is. But I do know that I just don't believe that it's before you were born. And if you said to me afterwards, yeah, I remember some in utero experience. Honestly, I just, I'm not going to believe you. So don't, like, don't tell me. Because I don't want to be put in that spot. I do know this, however, that that the baby who was born in Bethlehem was born, with, was born with the ignorance of a human infant and also with the infinite knowledge of a divine Lord. He has that. He's born and he doesn't know how to walk. He doesn't know how to walk. But he would also have the infinite memory of eternal Trinitarian existence. I don't, know. I don't know how you put that together, but he doesn't know how to walk. He will learn, but he has infinite memory of eternal Trinitarian existence. You take a few moments and try and think about that phrase and it'll blow your mind. He's the greatest person ever to be born because he's eternal. In the beginning, there was God, Genesis 1. In the beginning, there was the Word, John 1. There was Jesus. Now, Christians are the only ones in the world who really know What was there before the world was? The greatest scientific minds in the world tell us that there was a big bang, but they they can't explain how that thing that exploded came about. They can only go back to that point where there was this unbelievably dense thing that then exploded. They can't go beyond that. And the greatest minds in the world, and we acknowledge that they're great minds, they can't understand, they don't know, they can't explain what was there before something physical like that existed. But you can because you'll go right to Colossians 1.17 and you'll say, He, Jesus, the Word, is before all things. And in him, all things consist. You read about that. We saw it here earlier in John. Through him, everything was made, and without him, nothing was made that was made. He was there. What was before everything? Well, he was. In the beginning, was the word. One commentator says that that word was, a very simple word, seemingly insignificant, but actually of enormous significance because it refers to what one writer calls continuous existence. He just was. He just always was. There never was a time when he was not. Another writer says that the word was there is appropriate to eternal, unchanging being. John is affirming that the Word existed before the creation, before everything. You've heard the phrase, eternal generation, perhaps. The Lord Jesus is God's Son, not by adoption the way we are. You and I are daughters and sons of God by adoption, by rebirth. He's the Son by eternal generation. There was a time when you and I were children of wrath, even as the devil. He was always the Son. He was the Son by eternal generation. He always was Son. And the Father always was Father. And you can push back and push back and push back into endless eternity. And there never was a time when He was not the Son. He's eternal. So Spurgeon says of the phrase eternal generation, he says it's a term that does not convey to us any great meaning. It simply covers up our ignorance. And there's truth to that. We're just trying to grapple with things that really are beyond our power to grapple with. Um. But it does... It's our attempt to speak about the fact that He's eternal. That He always was, and He always was the Son. We read in Isaiah, that very familiar text, that He is the everlasting Father. You say, well, now Jesus is elder brother to us. Why does it speak of Him as Father? Well, it says eternal Father. Literally, it means He is the Father of eternity. And to a Jew, then, if someone possesses something... He's the Father of it. So He's the Father of eternity. He possesses eternality. The Messiah possesses eternity. He's always the Son. He always exists. And He is therefore eternal. That's why He is the greatest person ever to be born into the world. His goings forth have been Micah tells us, from everlasting. His goings forth have been from everlasting. Micah 5.2. If birth means anything to us, it means the beginning. I know we can quibble about, you know, there's nine months before that. I, I understand that. But we mark our beginning as our birth. That's, that's when we started. That's when we began. But Jesus was born, but He didn't begin there in Bethlehem. He's eternal. He is the the greatest person ever born, bar none. And thirdly, because He was God. In the beginning... Uh, sorry, he was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God. There's no one ever born who was with God. And the Word means to be towards God. Sometimes they translate it, paraphrase it, as, as face-to-face. It's a It's a preposition that speaks of accompaniment and relationship. So... You're there, and you're not just there, but you are in personal relationship with intimate fellowship with that person whom you accompany. The word was with God. Listen to Dr. Don Carson. He says uh, this preposition, with, is just a little four-letter thing, and um, it speaks of a situation when a person is with another person in some fairly intimate relationship. And that suggests that John may be already pointing out rather subtly that the word he is talking about is a person and is with God and is therefore distinguishable from God and enjoying a personal relationship with God. So he's there... And he's with God, but he's to be distinguished from God. Now we're on the outskirts of our theology of the Trinity, where there's one God, but three distinct persons. Not three gods, but three persons in one God. It doesn't talk about the Spirit here, but we know from the rest of the Bible that he's there. And so he's talking about Jesus as a person who's with God, and yet distinguishable from God, because they are face-to-face. The two persons are face-to-face. This is absolutely astounding, and you begin to let that percolate in your mind, and you realize that when there was nothing, He was there, and He was with God, and in personal and intimate relationship with God. So what does that tell us then about the uniqueness of this child born, of this person, the the separateness of this person from any other conceivable person who has ever entered the world at any point in time. Nobody is like this. Every other so-called savior. I was reading or watching a documentary on... The Beatles in India and uh, this crackpot hoaxer named the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, Someone who would would lead people to salvation. What a joke. There's no one else like this Jesus. Distinct from every other religious leader, every other so-called savior, every other person ever born because he was with God in the beginning before there was anything. And that's why we read in the scriptures in John 17, 5, Jesus says to the Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. This is astounding because Jesus says, I had glory with you before there was anything. Or this, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you gave me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Glory and love enjoyed by Father and Son and Spirit before there was anything else is with God. And no wonder that in time and space the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now you step back for a moment as a Christian, you begin to think, well now this is who He is. If He is like no other person ever born, because He he was, and He was always with God, and He was intimate, co-eternal, co-equal with God, And then you stand in awe of the fact that the Father sent this one into the world, this extraordinary being in whom he is well pleased and who is the son of his love. And he sends this one into the world, not just to live, that would be humiliating enough, but into the world to live and to die for you so that you may enjoy his love forever. And the extraordinary glory of the person magnifies the astonishing nature of the condescension and the grace manifested in order to save the likes of you and me. It's absolutely astonishing. Fourthly, He's the greatest person ever born because He's glorious. Because He's glorious. I have no better word than glorious to describe what John has to say about the person and the nature of the Lord Jesus. Because if you read verse 1 and then also verse 14, you read that the Word was God and the Word became flesh. That's, That's glorious. What's John saying? Well, he's saying that Jesus was God. That's just so crystal clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And look, the Word was God. You you can't say it any more clearly. And you can come along if you're a cultist, and you can try and twist that, and you can try and make up Greek rules that really don't exist to try and distort that and to make it say something it doesn't. But at the end of the day, you're just wrong. And Jesus is just God. The rest of the the New Testament affirms this. It ratifies this. It reinforces this. And we know that the Bible says that Jesus was omniscient. For instance, John 16, 30, the disciples say, now we can see that you know everything. That's omniscient. He knows everything. You can't teach Jesus. Jesus is omnipresent, not in His humanity Not in his physical form, because his physical form is in heaven right now. But he can also say, the same Jesus can say, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. Who's he saying that to? He's saying that to all his people. He's saying that to everyone. So when you go to your house today, and I go to mine, is he with you? Yes, he is. Is he with me? Yes, he is. How can he be with everybody? Well, because he's God. He's omnipotent. All authority has been given to me. He is immutable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Old Testament terminology and titles and descriptions that are used in the Old Testament of God. There are phrases like this, Alpha and Omega. Omega. Lord, Savior, King, Judge, all in, the Old, all in the Old Testament, Rock, Redeemer, Shepherd, Creator, Giver of Life, Forgiver of Sins, One who speaks with divine authority. See, all these are used in the New Testament in reference to Jesus, even in the passage we've read. He gave life, He's the Creator. Every one of these is applied to the Lord Jesus. So what's John telling us? Well, he's saying that Jesus is God. He's saying that Jesus is man. In verse 14, we read that the Word became flesh. Stuart Oliot says no hint is given that the Word ceased to be what He was previously. But what happens is that to His divine nature is added a human nature. The mechanics of that kind of thing are absolutely... ...beyond us and probably always will be. But that's what happened. He didn't just appear to be a man. He didn't, wasn't some kind of phantasm. Didn't just, it's not just a mirage, but he was actually a man. God sent forth his son, says Paul in Galatians 4.4, 4, born of a woman. So if they could do, at that time, DNA testing the way they can do today... ...if he was here and they were allowed to do DNA testing on him by his willingness, they would find that there's a connection there. He's got Mary's DNA. He's a real man, a true man. Hebrews 10.5 says that, and this is Messiah speaking, this is the Lord Jesus speaking before he came into the world. Hebrews 10.5, a body you have prepared for me. An actual body has been prepared. He was a true man with an actual and a real body, and he had a particular appearance. Jesus was a certain height. You know, feet and inches. You couldn't you could measure him. And he wasn't this tall or that. There was a certain height that Jesus was. He had eyes of a particular color. We don't know what, his, what color his eyes were. But he had eyes of a particular color. He had features, like physical features that would have let you know, well, he looks, he looks like Mary. And how you do that with children here, you say, oh, you, you look like your mum. you look like your dad, you look like a chip off the old block. He, we say that about children, and we can see, and it's remarkable sometimes, isn't it? Well, he would have looked like Mary, you see actual body dna connections and we're told in the scriptures that he wasn't particularly or necessarily remarkably attractive isaiah we read he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him when you see him you'll fall down at his feet like a dead person because he's so majestic and glorious Not denying that, I'm just saying that in terms of his physical features when he walked on this earth, people say, well, there's nothing particularly attractive about him physically. You read Revelation 1, you will see what it's going to be like when you see him face to face. Jesus had a human birth. He had human growth and human development. He had human appearance. There was no... He didn't look like he... He looks in medieval paintings. You see in medieval paintings with the he didn't have a halo. He just looked normal. He had human experiences. He, uh, sometimes he was hungry. Sometimes he was really hungry. Sometimes he was tired and sometimes really tired so much so that he could sleep through a storm. How can you sleep through a storm? He could sleep through a storm. He had human emotions like compassion and anger and joy and and Sorrow, he was, he was a man. And he's still a man. When, when he ascended into heaven, they looked at Jesus. He had eaten breakfast with them. And then they watched him, this Jesus, ascending. And then this same Jesus will come back. And so this bodily Jesus is there in glory. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, and now there's a, there's a man in heaven. A man named Peter Lewis wrote, he said, Go to the spiritual heart of the created universe, and you'll find a man. Go to the place where angels bow, who never fell, and you'll find a man. Go to the very center of the manifested glory of the invisible God, and you will find a man, true human nature, one of our own race, mediating the glory of God. And so, What's John telling us? What's he saying about the glory of Jesus? Well, he's saying that he's God and that he's man and he's saying that he's one. That is, he's one person. He has two natures. But everywhere the Bible says that Jesus said this and Jesus did this and Jesus went there. And Jesus slept and Jesus healed and Jesus knew everything and Jesus died. This is absolutely astounding. Calvin says, we affirm his divinity so joined and united with his humanity that each retains its distinctive nature unimpaired and yet these two natures constitute one Christ. And this is where it seems to me we see why perhaps like in no other place in no other truth we see why he's the greatest person who was ever born because he is the absolutely unique and absolutely extraordinary and wondrous God-man. The glory, says B.B. Warfield, the glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God so that God is somehow diminished or a deified man where humanity is simply swallowed up in deity No, the Incarnation presents to us not a a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is, and at the same time all that man is, one on whose almighty arm we can rest, and two, whose human sympathy we can appeal. It is, as Charles Wesley says, The incarnate deity, our God who is infinite, contracted to a span, the infinite joined to the finite, and one person. That's I don't know what words to use about that. I can tell you this. I can try. People have wrestled with us to try and grapple with this and try and describe this. They've been doing it for centuries. 1900 years ago, Augustine, Augustine said this. Man's maker was made man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger. The fountain, thirst. The light, sleep. The way, be tired on its journey. That truth might be accused by false witnesses. That the teacher be beaten with whips. That the foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. That's why there's no one greater. Well, how do you respond to this? (laughs) Adoration? Listen to Mary. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. My soul magnifies the Lord. So you listen to Mary, and you, re- you say, well, yes, adoration is the the only appropriate response. You listen to a Christian, too. In Psalm, in Psalm 98, verses 1 to 3, it says, "Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And Isaac Watts was, was meditating on that. And he asked himself, well now, this kind of adoration, if I'm a New Testament believer, how do I express this? What am I so happy about? What is it that stirs joy in me? This kind of explosion of praise, what instigates this for a New Testament believer? And he's thinking about this, and he writes, joy to the world, the Lord has come. So yeah, the response, how do you respond to this? It's adoration. And secondly, lastly, proclamation. Proclamation. Well, you see this by watching the shepherds. Luke 2, we read that when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. It's so a basic responses that should inform and shape our lives. Adoration and proclamation. They went and they made known what had been told them about Jesus. The psalmist says in Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. And Psalm 100 verse 4 says, give thanks to Him. I just learned this week an interesting thing about the word give thanks in the Old Testament One writer says it's an interesting thing that there's no word in Hebrew for give thanks. The word behind our English translation means to praise or to give public acknowledgement, to tell others what God has done. So if someone did you a favor or provided a blessing, instead of saying thank you, you would respond by saying, I'm going to declare your name to others. I'm going to praise your kindness and generosity and thoughtfulness to everyone I see. That's what the idea is of thanksgiving and gratitude in the Old Testament. So we praise God then by telling others about him. We praise God by proclaiming Christ. This is who you are, and this is what you've done, and my thank you is to go and tell everybody else about who you are and what you've done. And so our entirely appropriate response to what we've considered is adoration and proclamation. And your response, if you're not a Christian, is to run to Him as fast as you can. Believe on Him. Trust yourself to Him because He alone is able to save you, to forgive you, to take you to heaven, and to promise you that you need not be afraid. Remember what was said earlier. You need not worry. You need no longer be filled with anxiety. You need no longer be terror-stricken at the prospect of death. You come to Christ, and you'll be safe for time and eternity. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We stand before him in amazement. We stand astonished. And we pray that you will use your word to stimulate our minds and our thoughts, our thinking and our meditation so that we might respond with adoration and proclamation to the wonder of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Grant this for his name's sake. Amen.